Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Voice of America, the official podcast of the People's National Party. I'm so excited to be getting back to our regular routine of weekly episodes. I really hope you enjoyed your Christmas break uh, and your uh, holiday season with Christmas and New Year's. Um, And I hope you're energized and ready to get into this next year, 2022 election season. This is going to be a very interesting year, uh, and I look forward to it. Now, we are jumping into our part two of discussing distributism, because uh, as I've said before, there's a lot of people out there who do not fully understand what distributism is, or they want more examples and a better understanding of how distributism would actually work in practice. And that's what we hope to uh, talk about in this week's episode. So last week we were addressing the problem and uh, the basis of what distributism is and is not. And now we're going to talk about this week uh, how certain distributist policies and economic systems have actually worked out in practice uh, in real world examples throughout history. So should be a pretty great episode. And I hope you stick around because you're definitely going to learn a lot. So last week, since we were able to get a good basis of an understanding of what distributism is, I think it's safe to assume that uh, distributism is where uh, we have the widest distribution of private property and capital so that the the money-making potential is in the hands of the workers and the people. And there's many uh, real-world examples, as I said in the intro, of ways that distributist economics and distributist policies have been in practice all throughout history and up until today, all over the world. Uh, But they haven't been titled as distributism or they haven't been affiliated with Catholic social teaching necessarily, which is why it's been a lot more difficult to specifically define them. Um, So that's what I'm going to do this week. We're just going to go over a couple of the major examples of how uh, the government and the private sector were able to work together to ultimately benefit the working class people, whether that mean a farmer or uh, an industrial worker in a factory or whatever. Um, so I think to start off, the, one of the biggest examples a lot of people get from history is medieval guilds and guildism, corporatism, depending on what part of the world you're, uh, you're from, uh, it has different terms to describe it. Um, it is basically a system in which, uh, the collective workers of a certain industry can come together, uh, in order to support and uplift each other uh, regarding wages and prices and fees and regulation, um, kind of how a labor union would work, but with less corruption and more of a focus on the uh, the prosperity of the industry. Because uh, a labor union, I feel more, although they do play a beneficial role in society in certain ways, uh, they focus more on the the workers, the employees specifically, which is good. But where a, a guild is different is where it focuses more on the art and the or the craft that is being uh, 
that is happening in front of your eyes. So a shoemaker or a blacksmith or a baker or whatever, you know, those are some of the more prominent medieval examples of guilds. Um, you know, you'd have your, your craftsmen and your apprentices and, you know, it had a lot more emphasis on the prosperity of the art and the, the future and what the future had to hold. So it wasn't just about making sure there were fair wages and regulations and, and things like that when, you know, the, the wealthy elite wouldn't really care about that stuff. Of course, that is important, but it was also about preserving the art and that has a lot to do with the preservation of culture and the communities because distributism as stated the other week uh is a very localized approach to the economy and that's a huge huge thing because when you localize and you uh, return the capital and the wealth and the power uh, that the money holds to the actual people uh, who are operating under these systems, the financial side of the ec economy is better coordinated uh, amongst the population. And it is better put towards the actual community that it is uh, affecting. So now when I say localized, I don't necessarily mean we have to live in a society where there is no large businesses or enterprises that uh, maneuver and manipulate the, the money and the wealth of this country. That's not what I mean. I don't mean that we all have to live in local communities uh, where there's local mom and pop shops everywhere and there's no big larger businesses. Um, that's not necessarily what distributism is. It's a very wholesome, sweet um, way of looking at the world. You know, I think a lot of people would pr much rather live in that type of local economy that, you know, has people caring for each other on a daily basis and helping each other out. But that's not really the world we live in. And we have to come to recognize that reality. When I talk about localization of the economy, and specifically in this case with distributism, it's more about just having compassion and care for the people that are working for you as, a, as the owner of a company and the communities that you are working off of the land uh, and making a profit from. And I think one of the greatest examples that we have been able to see of worker cooperatives uh, and businesses that uh, really care about the people and the communities that they are uh, using the land of is the Mondragon Cooperative, which is one of the largest businesses in all of Spain. It's in the country's Basque region. Um, it has roughly 80,000 employees. And basically, you know, all the, the Mondragon Cooperative is, is a workplace democracy. It basically says that, you know, it's morally wrong uh, for countries like in America for the government to allow the 350 wealthiest companies to pay their CEOs roughly 320 times what the average worker of their respective companies earns. 
uh, that is that is morally wrong, and that is why the Mondragon Cooperative was founded in the 1940s by a Jesuit priest who looked at the economic inequality in Spain, in Europe, and in America, and all around the world, for that matter. And he said, you know, look, we have such an industry-rich uh, culture and society here. We have so much economic potential, but I don't want the uh, wealth and the capital and the land to be concentrated into a small hand of people, whether that be governing elite or corporate elite. I want that to be distributed widely as possible amongst the workers, amongst the communities that are being affected by my business. Which is why, um, you know, the cooperative has uh, a ton of different companies working under it uh, in all different types of industries, from retail to finance to uh, knowledge development, all sorts of stuff, including the Spain's largest supermarket chain. So the point is, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't necessarily have to be a local, a truly local economy in the sense that there's no chains or uh, large businesses or anything like that. That doesn't have to be the world we live in, even though that would be kind of an ideal, I think a lot of people would argue. However, um, we can live in a society where there can be large businesses and you know, we, we can technically live in a capitalist society because private property and uh, unequal amounts of wealth is absolutely necessary in order to keep an economy thriving. You know, I'm not arguing for socialism or anything like that. Uh, I don't believe that everybody should be able to earn the same. I don't think the CEO of a business should be have to earn the same as the lowest paid employee because that's not fair. But I also don't truly believe that the C that Jeff Bezos is working 320 times harder than the average Amazon worker. I just don't believe that's the case, which is why in the Mondragon cooperative, they capped it so that, um, the, uh, the owners of companies can only earn six times as much as their lowest paid employee. And, uh, if you look at the numbers, I will pull them up right here. Uh, you'll find that the, large portions of the profit instead of being pocketed by the uh, the leader the owners and the shareholders uh, at an excessive rate it is instead reinvested into the company uh, and it it is also put towards social safety nets so when there is an economic recession or a downturn of some type uh, like we saw in 2008 uh, and more recently <clears throat> in 2020, you know, so many businesses went under because they didn't have the capital and <clears throat> the financial ability to care for all of its employees. So they ended up having to either close up shop or lay off of lay off a ton of people. But in reality, they actually did have a lot of wealth and they did have the ability to stay afloat and to pay their employees even when they had to shut down. They just decided in the years leading up to these recessions and these economic downturns that instead of saving the money, instead of re reinvesting it back into the uh, employees, they uh, the, the owners pocketed it themselves. 
which is fine. Again, I believe that you as the owner of a company or a manager or whoever you are, the founder, you played a key role into the creation of the company. And without you, uh, that company would not be able to thrive and the employees would not have a job. But that doesn't mean that gives you the right to exploit them for your own personal gain. <clears throat> which is a problem that I and many other people have, both on the right and the left, we have with capitalism. Uh, the ultimate goal of capitalism, unfortunately, is the exploitation uh, of labor. It really is. Like at the end of the day, if you think about it, the ultimate goal of capitalism is to squeeze as much labor as possible out of the workers uh, for the most amount of profit, to pay them the cheapest wages possible for the amount of work that they are doing. Um, and, you know, it is what it is. That's fine. It's just, it takes a moral society to step in and say, it is wrong, morally and ethically wrong, to exploit the people to this great extent that so many companies around the world, not just in America, but many mega corporations do which is why the workers, although you may think they are insignificant, play a much larger role in the su sustaining the company and helping it thrive, which is why they deserve a say in their wages and in their uh, the, the regulations and their working hours and, and everything like that. And, you know, a lot of people might think, this is, again, very socialistic. You're giving so much power, supposedly, to these workers who don't deserve to have this role in the company. Um, but if you think about it, it actually does make sense. So going back to Mondragon, in uh, the spring of 2020, when COVID hit, the uh, since it, with it being a workplace democracy, the employees were able to vote on their wages, very similar to what how they did it in uh, when there were guilds. Um, and basically, they voted on a 5% pay decrease. Um, but since they had such a strong social safety net, since Mondragon had took and, taken most of its profits and reinvested it back into the company, they were able to compensate the workers later on and ultimately end up having a net positive year when it came to profits in 2020, when so many other companies in Spain, in all of Europe, and in America sunk because they didn't have a social safety net and they didn't actually care about their workers. So Mondragon is uh, probably one of the most significant examples of a <clears throat> large company it's the third largest company in all of Spain, and it's stood the test of time, that's for sure. Um, from the end of the Spanish Civil War in the 1940s to today. Um, it's a really great example, and so many other uh, people have taken the examples of the cooperatives like Mondragon and established it in their own countries. Uh, and you can do more extensive research on it if you'd like. There's some great resources and articles that talk about how uh, 
the Mondragon Cooperative really kind of decreases the a lot of the major problems that come with the capitalist system. And ultimately, they're just trying to create a more fair society for everybody. Um, again, I'm not, I, I try to keep pushing this because I know a lot of people get nervous when we talk about things like worker cooperatives and workplace democracy. I'm not trying to push for socialism or communism. I think those are morally wrong systems. They don't work, economically speaking and socially, when you look at it on a legit, on a social level. Is this a moral practice? No, it's not a moral practice. Neither is ca capitalism. They're both wrong. We do need unequal amounts of wealth in this country, as I said. But you cannot have it so that so few people have all of the power whether again whether it be through government or through the private sector another really great example that i found of uh distributism in practice was the taiwanese and japanese land redistribution programs uh throughout the 20th century which is something that isn't given a lot of light on but uh definitely deserves attention because land redistribution has a lot to do with distributism as well. Again, returning the power of the, the the power and the wealth back into the hands of the people. So I'm going to read uh, portions of this article that I found that really explains it a lot better than I think I could uh, give it to you guys. So uh, after Taiwan's retrocession to the Republic of China from Japan in 1945, over 50% of the island's population was farmers of whom 70% were tenants. After a half century of colonial rule, the Japanese land rental system still applied. The average share of the harvest that tenants had to turn over to the landowner exceeded 50%, sometimes going as high as 70%. Um, furthermore, some were iron leases requiring a fixed crop quantity, regardless of land conditions or natural disasters. Tenants toiled all year round just to give most of their harvest to the landlord. To make things worse, leases were usually oral. When conflicts arose, there was no written document to refer to, and landlords, given their higher social status, usually won out. The system represented blatant socioeconomic inequality. Now, the ultimate goal of Taiwan's land reform was to make all farmers the owners of their own fields. The reform process included four stages. The first one was leasing government-owned land to the tenants. The second one was a 37.5% cap on the shares of privately owned farmland. The third was the sale of public land to the farmers. And the fourth was the land-to-tiller program. Beginning in, beginning in 1946, um, to begin balancing the land supply and demand, state-owned farmland was leased to farmers for 25% of the crop. Furthermore, in 1949, shares were reduced to 37.5% on privately owned farmland based on the average harvest quantities for the previous two years. The figure of 37.5% was arrived by 
was arrived at by assuming that the working capital provided by a farmer was equivalent to 25% of total production. The remaining 75% of the crop was divided into two equal parts, one for the landlord and the other for the farmer. In 1949, Chen Cheng, the then chairman of the Taiwan provincial government, uh, pointed out to a reporter that farmers who made up a large percentage of the total population work harder than anyone else, but they sometimes could not even fill their stomachs. Quote, the motivation behind the 37.5% rent is to eliminate such unfair conditions, end quote. Under the new arrangements, crop yields increased as tenants were willing to invest more money into agricultural equipment and improved farming methods. According to the Ministry of the Interior Statistics in 1948, before the rent reduction, the total rice production was 1.037 million metric tons. Following that change in 1949, the rice output rose to 1.17 million metric tons, and then jumped to 1.5 million metric tons by 1952, a 46% rise in just four years. MOI figures show a 23% increase in income for mid-level tenants during this period. As a result, their standard of living and social status increased, with more of their children attending school. The average death rate of farmers also dropped. As landowners' profits from farmland decreased, land prices went down and they began to sell off land and invest them into other businesses. A study by Taiwan's China Research Institute for Land Economics in 1951 showed the amount of farmland sold in 1949 in six major agricultural counties was 20% more than in the previous year. This paved the way for direct ownership of land by farmers. Since the government was the largest landlord of all, the third stage of reform was to sell public farmland to tenants, with payments spread over 10 years. This policy was implemented from 1951 through 1975 in nine phases. According to MOI statistics, 286,000 farming households benefited, with over 139,000 hectares of land released. In 1953, following the 37.5% rent reduction and the sale of public farmland, the government took the final step in its land reform, the Land to the Tiller Program, transforming land ownership from the landlords to the tenant farmers. When ownership was transferred, landowners were compensated over a 10-year period, receiving 70% of the purchase price in land bonds uh, to be redeemed in kind in rice or sweet potatoes with interest at 4% per annum. The remaining 30% was paid with stocks in government-owned industries. From 1951 to 1953, the amount of land owned directly by farmers increased from 57% to 90% as a result of the land to the tiller program, according to MOI statistics. Taiwan's successful land reform has since become a model for many other countries. So I just thought it was important to read that. Um, it really does explain a lot about how a land redistribution program could work in the agricultural sector. Uh, something that, I mean, big agriculture in America has always been a plague uh, on the poor and mid lower middle class farmers of the Midwest and middle America. Um, we have examples of this going all the way back to the uh, Gilded Age um, in the late 20th century, uh, where, you know, we had a tremendous economic boom in the country, but it was all covered up by the amount of worker exploitation and struggling people that actually lived in this country. 
you know, the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, monopolies were being created, and overall, just a mess was ensuing. And local agriculture and poor farmers were being hit hard by the monopolies and the greedy trusts and uh, agreements that were being made behind closed doors between the railroad industry and the big agricultural companies and even the government playing a role in the creation of some of these monopolies. Uh, it didn't. It wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century when Theodore Roosevelt came around and said, no, this is wrong. We need to break up these monopolies. We need to bust the trusts, um, as he would say. And uh, we have to return the economic power back to the American people. And, uh, of course, in 1911, we had the example of the Standard Oil Company being broken up. The Standard Oil Company, which owned 90% of the oil refineries in America, 90%, was broken up into uh, regional uh, companies, and it ended up stemming <clears throat> into... Uh, what we know of today is ex companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, Amoco, stuff like that. Big, very successful uh, oil and gas companies that are thriving and very well. It wasn't socialistic. It didn't destroy the economy. In many ways, it only made it better. We still have problems today with monopolies and the concentration of wealth in the private sector. Uh, just as many other countries had problems with the concentration of wealth in the public sector with uh, only a few governing elite controlling <clears throat> such a massive amount of uh, power. And it is our responsibility to find a, <clears throat> a balance, a moral, ethical balance that values the workers, and the people and the communities, along with the nation, our values, uh, our, our faith, and uh, ultimately a, building a society that would better care for the people that are living in it. That is what we envision, that is what we uh, fight for, and that is what distributist economics ultimately attempts to achieve. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another great episode of The Voice of America. I really do appreciate it, uh, especially you for sticking around uh, towards to the end here. Uh, this has been a great series. I've personally really enjoyed it. Um, I'm just trying to better explain distributism to maybe our audience that has more questions about the economic theories of the People's National Party and what we're trying to promote here along with our social views um, because obviously they go hand hand together in order to build a more traditionalist Catholic uh, society. Um, so like I was saying, this is the second part of our three-part series on distributism. Uh, so we've already established the basis and the foundation of what cap uh, distributism is and is not. And now we've talked about real-world examples of distributist policies in practice. Uh, 
And next week, we are going to focus more on how to build the ideal uh, society that we are envisioning here at the PNP and um, how distributist policies will help us get to that point. I also might read an article uh, that I found on the Distributist Review, which is a really amazing website that I highly suggest you go and check out if you want to learn more about distributism. They have some amazing articles. I also think they have a podcast of their own um, uh, that you can find on Spotify and Google Podcasts, probably Apple, all that. Um, it, they have some really great resources, and they do clear up a lot of questions. Um, there's also many books and uh, other websites and organizations that you can reach out to if you are trying to learn more about distributism. And then, of course, there's great historical figures like G.K. Chesterton, who wrote a lot of great literature. Um, there's uh, things like Rerum Novarum, which uh, actually inspired the priest who created the um, Mondragon Cooperative. Uh, the Mondragon Cooperative was built off of uh, Pope Leo XIII and Pope Pius XI's uh, work uh, regarding a building a Catholic economic system. So anyway, a ton of great stuff that you can research, that you can explore uh, on your own. And if always, if you have any questions about distributism, about the party, about the podcast, um, you can always reach out to, out to us through social media, uh, through our email. Uh, you can check out our website and our platform, which is linked in our bio here on Spotify if you're listening. And uh, yeah, uh, so until next week, everybody, uh, God bless. <laughs>